Amen. Thank you, Bonnie and Linda. Spectacular as always. Truly wonderful. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Isaiah chapter 30. It's hard to believe we're almost halfway through Isaiah. Almost. Almost. <laughs> I just tell you, I just go wherever you all want. I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> um, that's the reality. All right, so we're in Isaiah chapter 30. Uh, last week we went over Isaiah chapter 29. We finished it up. And um, it was a reminder that we can't place our faith in the things around us, so we have to place our faith in God. And and this is just the theme of Isaiah, is showing the world is not going to be able to sustain you. Um, God will, though, trust in God. And if you were to say anything about Isaiah thus far, it's been that. Um, And so we'll go ahead and we'll look at a few things real quick, our map, because we are going to talk a little bit about some things. Uh, And again, we have still Assyria, the great big bad Assyria, which is conquering everybody, um, and including Babylon, Elam, Ararat, and down here in Judah. They actually end up defeating Egypt too, which is a big big push as we saw last week, because actually, no, we're going to be talking about it today too, I think. We are going to be talking about it today. Um, Because Egypt was the only one left, really, that could kind of withstand Assyria, but we're going to find that they were not able to. And the next slide, we'll go ahead. Um, a little bit further, and we kind of see how Assyria conquered everybody. They went in here and there and all over the place. And then the last slide shows us a little bit more about Israel up here, which again is conquered by Assyria in 722, and then Judah down here. And we see right here, I don't know if you can read it, but that says Negeb. And um, we're going to be talking about the Negeb. As you can tell, if you go south from the Negeb, you would end up in Egypt. And this whole place, the Negev, is kind of a wilderness area. There's a little bit of a desert there. Um, But we're going to be talking about that. So whenever you hear Negev today, remember, it's in southern Judah. It's just a big area, so to speak, of wilderness. All right. So let's go ahead to our verses. We'll start with verses 1 through 7. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, And who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh. And to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame. And the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at zone, and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them. That brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. An oracle on the beasts of the Negev, through a land of trouble and anguish. From there come the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying serpent. They carry their riches on the backs of donkeys, and their treasures are on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt, Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab who sits still. So this next chapter of Isaiah begins with a reflection on the people. God declares them to be stubborn children. How are they stubborn children? Like children who hatch a plan without consulting one wiser, so are the people. They make up plans for their own salvation. They see the coming onslaught of the Assyrians. And so they seek an alliance with another power for their security. Unfortunately, this alliance with the world is not at all an alliance with God. Because of this, it leads to them sinning even more against God. 
Interestingly enough, it is with Egypt whom they seek an alliance. The same Egypt who once held them captive are the ones whom they now seek to protect them against Assyria. Again, God chastises them for not seeking him in their decision to make an alliance with Egypt. Instead of finding refuge in him, they seek refuge in them. What will become of such an alliance? Um, The Lord declares that it will only lead to their shame and humiliation. Instead of providing them peace and comfort, it will only provide further devastation. In verse 4, scholars are unsure whose officials and envoys are in Haines and Zone. Um, And Zone and Haines, they were Egyptian cities. Thus, some believe that the Egyptians are the ones who are sending officials and envoys in hopes of forming an alliance against Assyria. Conversely, there's the view that Judah is the one who sent the officials and envoys to Egypt to form an alliance. In either case, we find this formality to the alliance being brought to the forefront. They're willing to go over the world in order to find safety, but not to consult the God who is right in their midst. The end result is again described. In finding an ally, which is altogether impotent, it leads to your own strength becoming impotent. Despite Egypt's prestige, they are not nearly as powerful as they had once been in the past, and they are unable now to provide any assurance for salvation for the people. Thus there is no profit, there is no gain, no help, only shame and disgrace. Isaiah then utilizes a number of metaphors to describe Egypt. He describes the journey to Egypt as it was once described in the exodus away from Egypt. The same road that led them away from captivity, they are willingly taking again back into it. The road they tread is dangerous, yet they bring fine gifts. Yet for what purpose? For despite the danger and the many gifts, in the end the people will not profit. Isaiah then describes it further. The supposed help with Egypt is going to give is worthless and empty. That is, it has no real strength and again is impotent. This is seen as God calls Egypt the Rahab who sits still. Rahab was not only the name of Rahab from Jericho, who believed and was saved by helping the spies. It is also a name given to the primordial matter of discord, which was against the gods back in ancient times when they believed in those things. People believed in the primordial matter of discord as powerful, and so they believed Egypt is similar. But the truth is, Egypt is not ready to strike with power, but more like those with age who have no power left in their bones. So is Egypt. It cannot do anything but sit. Um, and that's a really interesting one. Because then if you also, I'm just going to go off on topic here. If you also take it as Rahab, I mean, Rahab did something to help the Israelites. Um, so if you do were to take that as Rahab from the history, then this is a Rahab who can't help, who's not going to help, because they can't help. Egypt can't help. Um, Now we're going to go through verses 8 through 17, and this is a bit of a stretch, so I'm going to have two slides, Robin, and we're going to read all of them. I want you to go back to the one with verse 8 at the beginning after I'm done reading, okay? And then I'll tell you to switch over to the next. Uh, So verses 8 through 17. And now go write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right, speak to us smooth things, prophecy, illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, 
Because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant, and its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water from the cistern. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, No, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the retreat of one. At the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Now go ahead and go back. Isaiah is now called to write on a tablet and inscribe it in a book. What was he to inscribe? Some believe that it was just the name Rahab, but this seems unlikely. Instead, it seems the whole polemic against Egypt is meant to be written. That way, when the future generations read what had occurred and God's commands, they would know the truth, that God is the Lord of all. The future generations will look back on the current generation in Isaiah's time the same way the prophet currently looks upon them with with a bit of disdain. How are they perceived? Well, they're perceived as a rebellious people. They claim to be a people who want to know what the Lord speaks to them, yet in the end they continue to show that they are not wanting to actually hear God's commandments or his instruction. Despite claiming to want to know what the Lord speaks, they completely ignore it when it comes. Thus the seer is told not to see, and the prophet is told not to prophesy what is right and true. They are not to speak what is needed for salvation, but instead to smooth over everything so that the people can only hear what they want to hear. Don't speak the truth. Speak illusions. Indeed, by blinding the seers and silencing the prophets, they really only seek to silence God. They want to believe what they want to believe. They want to do what they want to do. They do not want God interfering with their plans or how they perceive the world around them. Because of all this, because they have continued to despise what, what it is that God has proclaimed through his prophets, instead of trusting in God who offers true peace and freedom, they continue to rely on their leadership, which continues to oppress them in untruth and pervert what is true. They rely on them, yet continue to shun God. The word of the Lord is holy. It is good. It is righteous. The people, however, are iniquitous. Their continued sinfulness is like a wall about to collapse. Instead of building up the wall for their better fortification, they continue to weigh it down to the point of it causing it to topple on themselves. The other way Isaiah describes it is as a pot which has been knocked off the shelf. So it is with their iniquity. It seems they're like minor things, but then when the result of their disillusionment comes, it will come swiftly against them. So it is the way of sin. If it is allowed to continue, it will only lead to one's undoing. And now we'll get to verse 15, Robin. What has God called the people to? The answer is himself. Over and over through the prophets, he has called for faithfulness to him, to trust in him. If they should place their faith in him and follow after him in repentance and in the way they should go according to his word, they would find actual rest. 
they would find security from their troubles. Yet over and over again, they have scorned the very hand of God. When he reaches for them, they push it away. To the point that they would rather trust in their own devices against the enemies that they find. They would flee on their horses. They would seek to escape. Yet their pursuers are just as fast and easily able to overtake them. What occurs? They had relied on themselves, yet the result is the same every time. They thought that they were strong, but at the sight of the enemy, they do not stand against them. Instead, they have no heart, no strength. Even a thousand against a single enemy, the enemy will win. What will remain? Only a pole on a hill. This could be taken a number of ways, but the most reasonable is that there would be a remnant which remains. Those who will be able to read what was written and understand how the people had failed so miserably by being faithless. The poll is a warning sign for the people. In light of what has occurred during the reign of Hezekiah and the destruction of much of Judah at the hands of the Assyrians, it could even be recognized that Jerusalem was all that was left after the onslaught. Thus, the till you are left. Jerusalem remains as the signal warning for the people. So the main point, the main point of these verses are to criticize the people. Despite having the omnipotent and omniscient God in their midst, they continue to connive with otherworldly powers for their defenses and their assurances. As such, they are like children hatching a plan, but that's going to be obviously thwarted. The one who they trust is not powerful enough. God, however, is. But they continue to reject him for their own folly. In trusting in themselves, however, it only leads to their destruction. Admittedly, this is a shorter sermon today. So, Ellen's okay with this. (laughs) That's all that matters, right? Uh, All right. The contemporary significance of Isaiah in our modern time is worth noting. Indeed, some may be reading Isaiah and thinking, how relevant are these passages every week? Truly, the passages are relevant precisely because the world is as, a, as it always has been. When the prophet speaks truth, the truth will be overarching for many different time periods. To be sure, there are moments when Isaiah prophesied over events which had specific uh, historical significance. We have seen the various nations which rose and fell, the ones around Israel and Judah who no longer remain, These particular instances were for one time for a particular group of people who were chastised for their faithlessness and immorality. Yet there is still so much we have seen which is applicable to us today. For the things which they were judged for are the same things that we will be judged for. The same immorality and unrighteousness which they pursued is still pursued by our own world today. All the nations of the world are capable of falling and seeking worldly pow- failing and seeking worldly power instead of seeking God. As such, the prophet speaks to us just as clearly today as back then. Isaiah recognizes the significance of this as what he is told to write down was not for his generation alone, but for those to come. That they would see the truth and seek after God instead of the things of the world, which, are, which their ancestors sought. The question we must ask is, have we been doing um, well in this? Have we continued the trend or have we been able to break the mold when it comes to seeking worldly power? Because it is easy for us to make alliances with the world. It is easy to see what the world provides and desire it within and without. What did God call us out of? 
Did he not call us out of the world to a new life? Did he not reveal himself to us to transform us according to his word? Has he not given us his spirit to dwell within us? Has he not given us the truth that he exists and that he speaks and that we are made in his image? Returning to Egypt, what a concept. And yet how often are we also more than willing to return? For Egypt, the world, with its long shadow, tells us it is safe and secure beneath its wings. Yet at what cost but our very soul? So it is with this world and the deceptions within it. We are constantly bombarded to turn from Christ, to reject what we know to be true, and instead turn toward a false idol of security. Our congregations have become subjected to much of this world has to offer. It is becoming increasingly rare for congregations to stand on the historic Christian faith in the face of the world around us. Like those in the past, we were being told that this is what's best. That if our society is to stand, it must stand on love defined as tolerance. Thus, we should not reject what the historic Christian faith deems sinful. And instead, we should love and embrace those who want to live their lives however they want. In a free society, it is impossible to escape this. Yet the issue comes when those promoting such tolerance force those beliefs upon society and the church. Thus, if you accept the individual in what the the scriptures would call their sinful state, you will be left alone. But if you should chastise them for their unwillingness to repent and believe, or simply call sin unlawfulness and against God, then you will be branded as a bigot, an extremist, a hater, etc. Thus, many congregations have decided to follow the course. Instead of offending anyone, they have decided to adopt positions which are in direct contrast with the historic Christian faith. They have decided to become smooth talkers rather than the speakers of truth. They have decided to bend the knee to the mob in hopes of being well received. Yet what does the mob demand other than all of us? Like those who came before, the society which demands such things from us demands our seers to stop seeing, our prophets to stop speaking the truth, but to speak what is illusory instead. As though God himself has no opinion on a matter, or if he does, it is impossible for us to figure it out, or he would simply accept people as they are. Yet we find repeatedly in Isaiah, God does not accept people as they are. He does not say to the sinners, go and sin some more. No, he says, turn, place your faith in me, repent of your sins, know and live in the truth. Do not cling to false beliefs. Do not trust in the world for its power. Trust in me. Today we have the same thing happening repeatedly in congregations and associations and denominations which change their doctrinal stances to better reflect the world, with individual Christians who trust far more in their own abilities rather than trusting in the word received. In all of these things, we ourselves have become those who prefer smooth talk rather than those who desire truth. There are many who believe that if we should speak up, then the church would lose a witness. Yet this is the exact opposite of the prophet's the apostles, and Jesus himself. He was not afraid to speak the truth for fear of having individuals turn away from him. Neither were the prophets or the apostles. For them, the truth is far more important than whether they were liked or whether they were accepted. It is better to be rejected for speaking the truth than to be accepted for speaking a lie in rebellion against God. To be judgmental can be a bad thing. And yet to be judgmental is a necessary thing. 
It is necessary for us to be able to distinguish between what is good and bad, right and wrong. These require judgments. It requires us to know the difference and to be able to stand for what is good and right against what is bad and wrong. If we were the only ones who truly invented these things, then it would make no difference across the board. Yet if there is a God who has given us the wisdom and the knowledge necessary to distinguish what is good and bad and right and wrong, then when we fail to stand for these things, we walk in open rebellion against God himself. We become the very rebellious children described in a text like these. Thus the warning is here. And necessary for us to consider. The prophets were told not to prophesy because the language was too harsh. So we are told the same today. The prophets were told to let go of the truth they proclaimed. The very demands the world makes us to today were being made by those who lived so long ago. The only question we must ask is, do we kneel to the world and their standards, or do we stand upon the solid foundation of Christ? The option remains ever before us, to speak the truth, or smooth talk. Both come at the cost of our very souls. Hmm. Messed that up there. Anyway, <laughs> sorry about that, everybody. <laughs> um, anyway, so I think that this leads to the gospel um, pretty clearly. All of Isaiah has <laughs> in so many ways. Um, and the gospel begins with our origins. We are created in the image of God. Uh, the fact that God, the creator of all the cosmos, of all that we see, when we look up at the night sky and we see those magnificent, beautiful stars, and we consider the grandeur of all this universe, it's amazing. And yet he decides that in humanity, in people like us, he's going to place his image. I mean, you're so much more important than all of those things. God loves you as his children, as his most special of created things. And it's wonderful because because of this we're able to have grace, peace, mercy. That we all have personhood. And that in the end we're all uh, have dignity and sanctity and worth to life no matter how old, no matter how young, no matter how big, how small. And we can all be redeemed. Now the problem is of course that we need to be redeemed. The problem is that with that freedom of choice comes what we see in today's text. Where we go back to Egypt where the people who had once been enslaved by this people goes back to that power because they believe that will save them. We have that same problem today. Christians in the Christian community can have that same problem today, whether it be sexualization, whether it be drugs, whether it be political power, whether it be any form of worldly power, it is possible for us to turn toward it for our salvation instead of turning to Christ and relying on him for our peace and assurance. And then when you also take into the fact that we all sin individually, we lie, we cheat, we steal, we murder, there's something wrong with humanity and we see it every day and we keep on seeing it every day. And we're deserving of judgment just as they were deserving of judgment. We're no different than those who came before us. The temptations are there and we follow into those temptations. But that's where redemption comes. Because despite the fact that we do fall into it, and despite the fact that we have failed God miserably, just like everyone in the Old Testament, God sent his son Jesus Christ in time, space, history, and flesh to live, die, and rise again. 
And in that, in his perfect life, we find complete and total righteousness. It's interesting. If we interpreted this right today, that Jerusalem would be the signpost. Jerusalem is the signpost because that's where Christ died. Interestingly enough, on a tree. (laughs) The signpost of all ages, I think. And so it is that in this person's death, in this death of Jesus Christ, and in his rising again, we find God himself, and we're able to see God himself. And his spirit comes upon us if we should believe. And we're able to walk in a different way than what the world wants us to walk. We don't have to walk in the wilderness of the Negev. But instead we can have truly green pastures. And whereas the world is surrounded by desert, we eat and we drink from a table that is full. Why would we want to go back to Egypt when this is in front of us? And where does it lead? It leads us back to all that is good, Jesus. It leads back to all that is good, God the Father, in step with the Spirit. Isaiah is giving us a warning every week. (laughs) I think it's time for us to start listening. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you too for your prophets, for those who you sent to proclaim the truth, Because, Lord, we are in need of the truth. We are in need of prophets, of seers, who will not stand idly by and be silenced by the world. But we need people who are willing to stand firm on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, this world needs it. And so, Lord, we rejoice because you have not called just a few people to this. You have called your church to it. And we are all able to partake of this glorious feast We're all able to partake in speaking the truth. For we are all a royal priesthood. And so Lord, I ask that you would give us the strength, that you would continue to give us wisdom and knowledge, and that you would continue to provide us the faith necessary for us to keep on to be steadfast. For Lord, you are truly wonderful. And there is no one like you. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our